Okay, uh, good afternoon. I think we're going to try and get started. Uh, our hope was to start at four, but, but clearly Harvard time is, is Harvard time. Uh, but it is seven past the hour, I think, so we really can, can formally begin. Uh, so good afternoon and welcome uh, to this panel discussion on the book, uh, The End of Concern, Maoist China, Activism and Asian Studies. My name is Arunab Ghosh. I teach a modern Chinese history here in the history department. Uh, the End of Concern, this book here, is an intellectual history of the Committee of Concerned Asian Scholars. It addresses the legacies of the summer of 1968 and the appeal that Maoist China had, and in some cases continues to have, uh, for a whole range of people across the world. My goal for the panel was to bring together scholars who work on different parts of Asia to reflect on the book and on the possibilities of Maoist activism that excited people uh, during the 1960s and 1970s. And uh, we're very fortunate today to have amongst us not only six eminent historians, uh, many of whom specialize on different parts of Asia and in some cases were present uh, at the creation of the committee itself, uh, but also the author himself, Fabio Lanza. Uh, this panel uh, would not have been possible without the generous support of many centers here at Harvard, uh, and I'd like to recognize their, their help. Uh, these include uh, the Harvard University Asia Center, the Fairbank Center for Chinese Studies, uh, the, the Reischauer Institute of Japanese Studies, the Korea Institute, and the Mittal South Asia Institute. Uh, just as crucial have been uh, Mark Grady and James Evans uh, at the Fairbank Center, uh, without whose administrative and logistical experience and expertise, uh, this really would not have been possible. Uh, so my, my grateful thanks uh, to, to all of you. Uh, so here's how, how things will proceed. Uh, I will shortly hand things, hand things over to Professor Karen Thornber, who will chair and moderate and, and introduce our panelists and get us going. Uh, but before that, I'd like to basically abuse my privilege as the organizer uh, <laughs> and, and to show you a short four-minute clip uh, from uh, a Shottajit Rai movie called Protidondi, uh, which means the adversary. Uh, the movie was made in 1970 uh, and is part of what's known as Ray's uh, Calcutta Trilogy. Uh, this is a time when the Naxalite movement, a, a Mao-inspired grassroots uprising that began in the eastern Indian village of Naxalbari um, in 1967, uh, was sort of uh, 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 beginning to sort of spread. Uh, and it provides the backdrop uh, for, for a city, Calcutta, uh, that is racked by student protests, uh, activism, and of course, a tremendous state repression. Uh, so the scene I want to show you, I believe, captures perhaps what is uh, a universal set of circumstances at this time, and if I may say so, a universal set of concerns. Um, and it's amongst the first scenes in the movie. Uh, I'll just say that our protagonist is actually not a communist, though we don't know this at this point in the movie itself. So. Come in. Take your seat, please. Thank you. Your name, please? Shetatu Chodhri. Could you show us your papers, please? Yes, sir. Like to 
How old are you? I'm just over 25, sir. You are a BSc? Yes. When did you graduate? Uh, 1966. And you've been idle ever since? No, sir, I was at the medical college for two years. What were you doing there? Studying, sir. Only for two years? Yes. What made you give up medicine? Did you suddenly lose interest in medicine? No, sir, I lost my father. I see. What's your name in life? Right now, it's to find a job, sir. But the job you've applied for has nothing to do with medicine. No, sir, but I also did botany for my science degree. Do you like flowers? Not unconditionally. Some I like, some I don't. Does the term mitochondria suggest anything to you? It's a botanical term, sir. Mitochondria are small, thread-like bodies in cytoplasm. Who was the Prime Minister of England at the time of independence? Whose independence, sir? Our independence. Thank you. What would you regard as the most outstanding and significant event of the last decade? The war in Vietnam, sir. More significant than the landing on the moon? I think so, sir. Could you tell us why you think so? Because the moon landing, you see, we, we weren't entirely unprepared for the moon landing. We, we, we knew it had to come sometime. We knew about the space flights, the great advances in space technology. So we knew it had to happen. I'm not saying it wasn't a, a remarkable achievement, but it wasn't unpredictable. The fact that they did land on the moon. Do you think the war in Vietnam was unpredictable? Not the war itself, but what it has revealed about the Vietnamese people, about their extraordinary power of resistance. Ordinary people, peasants, and no one knew they had it in them. And this isn't a matter of technology, it's, it's just plain human courage. And it takes your breath away. Are you a communist? I... I don't think one has to be one in order to admire Vietnam, sir. That doesn't answer my question. However, you may go now. Okay. Uh, so I'd, uh, I'd like to now invite Professor Karen Thornber, the Professor of Comparative Literature in East Asian Languages and Civilizations, and the Victor and William Fung, Director of the Harvard University Asia Center, to introduce our panelists uh, and chair the discussion. So okay, so welcome everyone. Uh, if our speakers can return to their nice, uh, very well uh, labeled places here. Uh, wel welcome everyone to I think what promises to be a really exciting afternoon. 
And I'm going to keep my remarks really quick here because we're already behind schedule and RNOP has me on a very, very uh, strict schedule here. So I'm just going to briefly introduce uh, all our speakers, uh, starting with Fabio Lanza, who's Associate Professor of History at the University of Arizona and the author, of course, of The End of Concern, the book that we're here uh, to discuss this afternoon. Uh, also featured on our panel this afternoon will be Ellen Schrecker from Yeshiva University. She's Professor of History Emerita at Yeshiva University uh, in New York. We have Professor Andrew Gordon with us this afternoon as well. Professor Gordon is the Lee and Juliet Folger Fund Professor of History at Harvard and this year the Acting Director of the Harvard Yenching Institute. We have with us today as well uh, Professor Joseph Eschrich from the University of California, San Diego. Professor Eschrich is Professor Emeritus of History at uh, the University of California, San Diego. Today, with us today as well is Professor Sugata Bose of Harvard University. Professor Bose is the Gardner Professor of Oceanic History and Affairs here at Harvard. We're really delighted to welcome to Harvard as well this afternoon, Professor Lian Hang Nguyen from Columbia University. Professor Nguyen is the Dorothy Borg Associate Professor of the History of the United States uh, and East Asia at Columbia. And uh, finally today, we have Professor Bruce Cummings from the University of Chicago. Professor Cummings uh, is the Gustavus F. and M. Anne M. Swift Distinguished Service Professor at uh, the University of Chicago. Before turning the podium over to our panelists, I also would like to do a few thank yous. First to our organizer, Arnab Ghosh, who put together a really phenomenal uh, panel this afternoon. Professor Ghosh, as he mentioned, is Assistant Professor of History in the History Department uh, here at Harvard. I would like to uh, thank as well the staff of the Fairbanks Center, particularly uh, James Evans and Mark Grady, again, for making everything here go so terrifically smoothly. As I mentioned, we're on a really tight schedule this afternoon. So one of my uh, unfortunate jobs as chair of this panel is to keep time, and I will. I'm under very strict instructions uh, from Arnab to do so. So I will be glaring at James, who will be holding up signs. And really, we, we do ask you to keep to, to, the, to the limit, uh, because I know some people have to leave at 6. I actually teach at 6, so I'll be leaving here at 5.50 which I imagine is when the discussion will be taking off, but unfortunately you'll have to fill me in over dinner about the discussion. So apologies in advance for cutting people off, but uh, we, will, we will do that. And uh, so first up this afternoon, uh, we have Professor uh, Sugata Bose from Harvard. So, Sugata. Oh uh, yeah, you can sit or stand. Uh, uh, thank you very much, Karen, and thank you, Arunab, for bringing us uh, all together uh, this uh, afternoon. Kolkata, uh, 1968. Amar nam tomar Vietnam, Vietnam. My name, your name, Vietnam, Vietnam, was one of the slogans that rent the monsoon-laden air of Kolkata in the late 1960s. The colonial era Harrington Street on which stood the US consulate was renamed Ho Chi Minh Sharani in a symbolic act of anti-imperialist solidarity in that global historical moment. Another slogan had mention of a place closer in geography, Amar Bari Tomar Bari Nakshal Bari Nakshal Bari, 
Nakshalbari is your home and mine. Chairman Mao Zedong hailed the 1967 peasant uprising in Nakshalbari as a peal of spring thunder of the Indian Revolution. But to mix Mao's favorite metaphors, it turned out to be one which failed to spread like a prairie fire. Why not was a puzzle that troubled me when I went in 1973 to read history as an undergraduate in Presidency College, where one could still hear faint echoes of a once reverberating cry, Lenin, Stalin, Lal Salam, Mao, Ho Chi Minh, Lal Salam. It remained one of my guiding questions as I began my doctoral research in 1978, far away in Cambridge, England. The red salutes and the little red book had fallen through the trapdoor of history. But the insights in Mao's tract on practice stayed with me as I delved into the theory and history of agrarian transformation in colonial and post-colonial India. Fabio Lanza writes with deep empathy in his book about concerned American scholars of Asia who were at least half a generation ahead of me. In reading his account, one cannot but admire the moral and intellectual courage of Marilyn Young and James Speck, who as graduate students here at Harvard challenged stalwarts of the field, including the towering ambivalent figure named John King Fairbank. By exposing the spurious psychocultural tropes that pervaded the field, they helped restore the agency of Asian historical actors. Yet, Fabio does not acknowledge in full measure the extent to which the China obsession proved to be the Achilles heel of the CCS movement. It was one thing to take a resolute stand against the brutal American war on Vietnam. Quite another to imagine in Maoist China, especially in the era of the Cultural Revolution, the panacea for the global ills of inequity. The committee wanted a humane approach to the study of Asia in place of the callous endorsement of or acquiescence in American aggression by the academic establishment here. The committee excoriated the blindness of the apologetics of imperialism that characterized existing academic knowledge in the American Academy on Asia. But was it not itself blind to the inhumanity of the quill drivers of the Great Leap Forward and the Cultural Revolution, even if an overall assessment of Maoist China might be far more positive than what a focus on 1959 to 1961 and 1966 to 1970 might reveal. Such blind spots and blinkered views are not unusual in the search for better alternatives in the form of utopia. The abjection felt under Western colonial rule in Asia had led some of the most astute anti-colonial thinkers to turn a blind eye to Stalinist terror in the 1930s. When I first saw the iconic Joan Robinson in 1978, I was flabbergasted to find that her 1968 romance with the Cultural Revolution in China was not over. 
It was not that anyone had full knowledge of the human toll of that misadventure as yet. I certainly did not. But even as a schoolboy, I had witnessed how once the widespread agrarian revolution failed to materialize, the Noxalite movement degenerated into an erratic campaign of terror in the urban jungle of Calcutta. It is futile to deny that there was an element of infantile mimicry in the proclamation, China's chairman is our chairman, plastered on Calcutta's walls. But that was not all there was to it. In my own study, Peasant Labor and Colonial Capital, published in 1993, I concluded that the Nakshalbari uprising, limited though it was in its geographical spread, had a disproportionate impact on political psyches in India. I quoted a sympathetic scholar, Shumanta Banerjee, who likened it to the premeditated throw of a pebble designed to bring forth a series of ripples in placid waters. The impact of Nakshalbari as a local expression of global Maoism was even more profound on the tenor and trajectory of Indian historical scholarship. It triggered a productive departure from Marxist orthodoxy that held sway until then and planted the seeds of what eventually bore fruit as subaltern studies. Whatever the engagement with European theory, it is hard not to notice that Ranajit Guha's elementary aspects of peasant insurgency in colonial India was informed, influenced, and even inspired by his enchantment with the Nakshalite dream, whatever the pitfalls of its praxis. An attraction to the magnet of Maoism in their student days surely molded the intellectual concerns of scholars like Gautam Bhadra, Dipesh Chakraborty, Partha Chatterjee, and many others, both within and outside the charmed circle of the subaltern collective. And since the Hindu majoritarian regime in India has taken to dubbing all dissenters, either anti-nationals or Maoists, we are all urban nakshas now. The reason for my having to leave early today is to speak on the crisis of democracy and human rights in South Asia today at an event at Tufts in memory of Asma Jahangir. Before I go, I would like to address Fabio Lanza's keen insight into the concerned American scholar's conception of Asia as not just a site of oppression, but as a supplier of viable political alternatives to the United States and potentially to the world. When I arrived on this side of the Atlantic in 1984, I discovered with a bit of concern that Asia in the American Academy meant East Asia. And what a struggle I had from 2001 to 2010 to try and get the study of South Asia a place in the sun at this August institution famous for its centers on East Asian studies. This is not surprising since Asia was often deployed, as Fabio tells us, as a metonymy for China, even by the concerned American scholars. For them, we are told India stood as a memento of missed revolutionary opportunities. For the unconcerned, South Asia was irrelevant as a fount and venue of innovative scholarship. 
I agree with Fabio that a theoretical engagement with China and Asia is the only possible political and intellectual way forward. Where I disagree with him is the claim that Asia was a political signifier for the concerned American scholars of Asia, unlike the Asianisms of the late 19th or the early 21st century. It is a mistake to reduce all Asianisms to spurious cultural essences of Asian values. With all due respect and gratitude for their empathy with Vietnam and China, America's Asia, as imagined by the concerned scholars, was at least in part a fantasy about the liberating and egalitarian potential of the Cultural Revolution. Asianisms, as articulated by the best Asian thinkers since the turn of the 20th century, had a creative spark absent in Western cartographic and geographical depictions of the continent. Belonging to a location does not prevent the ability to theorize about it. Broadening the horizon of theorizing about Asia has in large measure come in the past and will come in the future from Asia. No one said it better than Rabindranath Tagore during a trip to Iran in 1932. We are the people of Asia. Grievances against Europe are in our blood. Ever since their pirates and marauders came to suck the blood of this weak continent in the 18th century, they have disgraced themselves before us. If a new age has dawned in Asia, let Asia give it utterance in a new authentic voice. If instead, Asia merely imitates Europe's beastly cry, were it even to be the lion's roar, it will be a loss. He was thinking, of course, of the nationalist rivalries in Europe and did not want Asia to imitate the territorial model of the European nation state. Now, whether Asia can, through contemporary theorizing and practice, craft a way towards a post-imperialist and potentially post-nationalist Asia remains to be seen. Thank you very much. Next up, we'll have uh, Professor Bruce Cummings. Well, I, I didn't know I was going to go second, but uh, I was just trying to figure out what I was going to say. Uh, one thing I want to say is that Fabio's book, I think, is a remarkably good book on a subject that I think at first uh, might seem obscure to a lot of people. Uh, I think it, it's a subtle, fair-minded account, and it, it rings true with my own uh, history uh, as a member of CCA, CCAS. However, uh, I work on Korea, and in our Columbia CCIS chapter, we had uh, Frank Baldwin, who was a modern Korean history professor at uh, uh, Columbia, Moss Roberts from NYU, and Carl Riskin, uh, the only person working on China among the faculty that joined our group. 
John Dower was also a person I got to know uh, well at the time. And as a first year graduate student who was intellectually challenged with a lot to be challenged about, uh, I have to say that the courage of this faculty in participating uh, in CCAS at Columbia against terrible opposition on the part of the senior faculty uh, is something I've always uh, had complete respect for. Carl was denied tenure a few years later. Uh, Frank Baldwin left before he was denied tenure, but I'm sure uh, that would have been the outcome. He actually uh, never taught again in a university. And Moss Roberts has been at NYU forever, uh, but he was teaching Chinese in the summer at Columbia and, and no longer got that contract. So it was pretty draconian. Uh, but from the standpoint of a <laughs> first or second year a graduate student, uh, it, it was also remote and abstract. Uh, I, I didn't even know what tenure was, I don't think, even though my father was a professor. <laughs> I mean, I wasn't thinking about things like that. But what struck me was that when I got to Columbia, uh, I was very insecure. Coming from the Midwest, uh, UIV leaguers don't know that there still is a, a tendency uh, to think that uh, you won't be accepted or you won't be good enough or whatever. The great thing about CCIS was that I was demystified on that point uh, very quickly. But I had uh, professors in my first and second year who were renowned specialists. I'd read their books. I was in awe of them when I came uh, Columbia, C. Martin Wilbur, for example. I think I took a year-long course in Chinese history with Marty Wilbur, and he took a liking to me because I had gone to Denison University where I wasted two years trying to play basketball and baseball before getting serious. And I had told him I hit my longest ball at Oberlin where he graduated. And I think he always thought that sooner or later I would actually turn around and, and be the good boy that he thought I should be. But I remember one time in class, I, I learned an enormous amount in his class. He, he assigned so much reading uh, that, that uh, I, I still can't believe it. But one day, one of our members in CCAS stood up and said, why don't you uh, have on your reading list uh, William Hinton's book, Fan Shen? And Marty said, well, there are a lot of problems with that book. And so she said, uh, what kind of problems? Can you give us a few of the problems? And he basically, uh, it was toward the end of the period, he closed up his whatever he had and said class is over. He was also very red-faced and, and flushed at the time. And I use that example, and there are two or three others I, I could uh, cite. One I will definitely cite uh, to indicate that the challenge that CCAS and many other groups like it on campuses pose to established the established professoriate was really profound. I think in many ways uh, a loss of authority in the classroom uh, is something that led to the uh, neoconservative movement. Gene Kirkpatrick, I think, is a, is a good example of that. But from my standpoint, uh, as a graduate student, I, I would have expected something different, that they would have been able to debate and converse and treat with tolerance uh, what uh, students in their classes were saying, but many of them uh, could not. I took a course from Doak Barnett in Chinese politics. Uh, huge crowd in, in a room like this. 
And up front were people in uh, suits and ties with Samsonite briefcases when everybody else looked like the Grateful Dead. <laughs> Can I have my water bottle, please? I'm getting Thanks. And it, it turned out that uh, they were people from Washington, usually from Langley, from the CIA, and that Doak and, and his uh, junior protege, Michael Oxenberg, were going back and forth to Langley uh, frequently. Uh, this also surprised me. It was nobody wanted to talk about it except us in CCAS. <clears throat> there was one person, not on the faculty really, but uh, on the ninth floor in the East Asian Institute of Columbia, who never lost her nerve or got out of sorts. Uh, that was Dorothy Borg, who uh, a great diplomatic historian of East Asia. And when I would run into something like this CIA information, I would go to Dorothy and I'd say, what do you think about that, Dorothy? And she would say something like, well, what do you expect from those two? Uh, and we had long discussions of, of the heavy CIA involvement uh, in East Asian studies. And our Columbia chapter actually did a major report on the relationship between government agencies and the China Committee of the SSRC, which was widely condemned when it came out. And now it turns out that we didn't know the half of it. Uh, if you look at uh, a book on American Foundations by Inder, Inderjit Harma, a very good British scholar, he went into the Ford Foundation archives and found tons of material on the CIA and the foundations in, in the shaping of the East and South Asian field. But I, I think uh, there was another woman at the time, I'm running out of time myself, uh, who also was a kind of mentor to me, or somebody to, to look up to, and that was Marilyn Young. Uh, see, I was a member of two CCIS groups, the one at Columbia, uh, and then uh, my former wife uh, went to Michigan, to Ann Arbor, to get her degree, and uh, I followed her and did my dissertation in the early 70s uh, at Michigan. And uh, Charles Sell, Chuck Sell, and his wife Elaine were sort of running CCAS as a cell. <laughs> um, and I remember sort of uh, criticism, self-criticism sessions where we had to show our bona fides to get on the second or the third CCAS trip to China. I, I don't remember which one. Uh, but before I, I have to sit down, I, I do want to say that uh, as a Koreanist, I, I was interested in China as well and not Japan. One day Frank Baldwin sat me down and he said, why are you studying Korean and Chinese? You should be studying Korean and Japanese. And I said, China's really interesting and Japan isn't. <laughs> and he, he turned out to be right for several decades and wrong now. I mean, studying Korean and Chinese is a great uh, career move uh, today. Uh, but I, and I wrote, I've written about China in articles for over the years from time to time. I found Maoist China really interesting, but I, I, I never felt myself to be a Maoist or a follower in any sense. And one of the reasons is I always had North Korea there to look at as a counterexample. How could you be uh, interested or supporting or in some way following Asian socialism when you had Kim Il-sung instead of uh, Mao? And I, I actually think that was a kind of break on my own tendencies at the time. Uh, we can talk about that a bit more in, in the uh, uh, discussion, if, if you'd like. 
I did want to tell one story about Columbia that I, I still can hardly tell without laughing. Uh, I was taking classical Chinese with uh, <clears throat> Hans Bielenstein, who was quite a character. And Hans had uh, only recently told the men they no longer have to wear a coat and tie uh, to come to class. Frank Baldwin had purposely sat in the front row without a tie uh, during Bielenstein's classical Chinese just to piss him off. Uh, but in 1970, we, uh, CCAS and other uh, groups, put a, a cordon around a picket line around uh, Kent Hall, the East Asian Library and Center of East Asian, uh, of East Asian Studies. We let people come through. It wasn't, we weren't trying to block them. But Hans Bielenstein heard about this, and he went through the tunnels <laughs> underneath the campus there. I didn't know this. There are tunnels underneath the Columbia campus. So he could get into the building, go up to his uh, office on the fourth floor, get a mimeograph machine, and start reeling off various statements about how you people are going to flunk, and if you don't show up for the final exam, this is going to happen. And he would, you know, he wouldn't just sail them like a paper airplane. He would throw them at us. <laughs> and then he got so frustrated, it must have been the second or third day of the strike, that he went to the office of the president and demanded that he call the police and get us out of uh, Kent Hall. Well, the president wasn't about to do that because the previous president had done that in April 1968 and had gotten himself fired uh, after creating a, a police riot uh, on the Columbia campus. So he actually uh, con contacted the Young Americans for Freedom. I don't know that many of you remember the Young Americans for Freedom, but they were one of the leading right-wing youth groups, I guess, uh, in America at the time. Uh, to come and, and clear us out of the building. And I remember standing, uh, Peter Guang, who was uh, <laughs> right in the middle of the picket line, uh, guy from Hong Kong who was a great, very good friend of mine and, and became uh, a really uh, wonderful historian of Chinatowns in the US. I was standing there, and this guy in a black suit and white socks comes up, which was the FBI uniform at the time, but I don't know who he was, really, uh, and punched Peter right in the mouth. And Peter was the only Asian on the picket line. And I can still see that happening today. So I think the book that Fabio has written uh, you know, has a certain small character in that CCAS was a, a relatively small group. It had only a few really active chapters. And it, it did kind of fizzle out by the 1980s. Uh, but it represented a trend that completely won out, and that is people of different genders, people of different races and ethnicities, uh, people who were not like the, <clears throat> I was about to say dead white males, but that's completely unfair because I'm one of those now. Uh, but the virtually uh, entire uh, white male faculty at Columbia, uh, all of that has been changed and transformed over the last 50 years. Uh, you can see it in this very diverse audience today. And, and I think that CCIS played a, a small a small role in that. Uh, I forgot to mention uh, about Marilyn Young. I, I saw her in 1973 sitting on the floor in her uniform of uh, green corduroy pants and a sweatshirt. She had recently left her husband for uh, another woman. Uh, he, she kept uh, in very good touch with Ernie Young, but she had decided she was a lesbian. Uh, and I met her at that time. And, and from that time until she died uh, last year, uh, last February, uh, I always felt I had somebody who could uh, give me uh, wise advice. 
And she's just a wonderful person, uh, and I miss her terribly, like I think all her friends do. Thank you. Hi, next up we have Professor Ellen Schrecker. Okay, you forgot to mention that my first publication was in an important field of Chinese culture. Some of you may know it. It was a cookbook. Um, <laughs> anyhow, I'm here as an American historian uh, who is studying university faculty members in the 1960s and 70s. And I want to try and place the CCAS within that larger movement of radical activists within the academic community. And since I'm trying to squeeze a lot of material into 12 minutes, I was told, this is going to be rather sketchy, and I'm leaving out all the juicy quotes, and I'm very sorry. Um, and what I'm going to be looking at is the movement of politically active scholars who were working within what came to be known as the radical caucuses within their individual disciplines. And we don't know how many of there actually were these radical caucuses. Some were very evanescent and just lasted a few months. A few are still around. Um, most of them, like the CCAS, came into being sometime between 1967 and 1969. And like CCAS, most of them were organized by groups of graduate students or a few junior faculty. One scholar claims there were 18 of these groups. I found about a dozen, I'm still looking, some of them uh, you may have heard of, there was a radical caucus within the Modern Language Association, a related caucus within the American Studies Association. There was ERPI, which is probably the most successful of those groups, the Union of Radical, uh, for Radical Political Economics. There was a radical caucus within the American Historical Association. There was the Caucus for a New Political Science. There was the Sociology Liberation Movement, Anthropologists for Radical political action. There was a group called CESPA, Scientists and Engineers for Social and Political Action, mainly a group of physicists who on the West Coast who rather quickly merged with a uh, Boston-based group called Science for the People that's still around. Uh, there was the Mathematicians Action Group and probably many more in certain sub-disciplines that I have yet to discover. The CCAS was unique in certain ways, primarily because Vietnam, which was certainly the motivating factor in radicalizing so many academics at the time, was specifically within the scope of the scholarship of the people in CCAS. In addition, um, East Asian studies was the field most sincerely, most seriously impacted by McCarthyism, more than any other area of scholarship. And also, um, CCAS was being organized during a period uh, of enormous transition within um, American relations with China. As we know, this uh, ends the incredible antagonism between the United States and China and the beginning of some kind of real relationship. Um, 
while the wave of radical political activity among within the academic profession was clearly more widespread and intense during the uh, long 60s, it was not unprecedented. Uh, we know, for example, uh, immediately after the Second World War, groups of physicists from the Manhattan Project organized themselves to uh, fight, not successfully, against a nuclear arms race. And in the mid-60s, there were revelations about a massive military-funded social science project called Ca uh, Operation Project Camelot, which led to attempts, uh, especially among anthropologists, to uh, question the relationships between scholarship and the government. There were also, during the, the uh, pre-CCAS uh, years, uh, some general organizations of left-wing academics, as well as a few journals, like Studies on the Left. Uh, there was, for example, the Social Scholars Conference, which was organized in 1965. Uh, out of Columbia, 500 people showed up. Two years later, it was being held at a big downtown New York hotel with 3,000 people in attendance. Um, and it's still around. It's now called the, new Le the Left Forum. There's also the New University Conference, or NUC. This was also organized, in, like CCAS, in the summer of 1968 by graduate students and junior faculty, many of them alumni of SDS, who saw themselves as the academic sector of some kind of revolutionary movement operating as, and I quote, the, a national organization of radicals who work in, around, and in spite of institutions of higher education. The main focus of these academic radicals in the NUC and elsewhere was two types of activities. One was creating a presence within the learned societies, um, and the other was putting out some kind of a publication. Uh, they were particularly active at the annual meetings of learned societies. Um, some pulled out some rather disruptive moments, but uh, we don't get into that. Others, uh, mainly, they, they uh, sought to recruit members themselves. They set up literature tables, they held meetings, they did a lot of informal networking. Uh, they put on panels at the annual meetings, like CCAS did, uh, creating a presence um, within these uh, organizations. Sometimes their panels were approved of by the disciplinary organizations. Sometimes they uh, had to organize them on the side outside at churches and places like that. Um, they submitted resolutions, obviously most of them against the war. Very interesting group of resolutions uh, during the uh, late summer and of 1968 and early 1969, where they pressed the annual meetings, at the annual meetings, they called for the cancellation of future meetings in Chicago. Why? 
because uh, it was a protest against Mayor Daley and the police crackdown on uh, the Democratic National Convention. And surprisingly, those almost uniformly all passed. Um, there different uh, um, caucuses presented uh, specific resolutions with regard to their fields. Anthropologists were very concerned with a code of ethics, for example. Um, they also, pretty much all of them, tried to democratize the learned societies, which were very hierarchical organizations run by very well-established senior scholars from uh, elite schools who were selected usually uh, as a result of uncontested elections. So they ran candidates, not always successfully, though there were a few uh, successes, and they tried to change the rules. Um, for some funny reason, there was considerable opposition from the establishment. Um, finally, by the late <coughs> 60s and early 70s, they began to put pressure on the learned societies to do something about that developing employment crisis within their own fields. Um, they began to advertise jobs, for example. Now, all of these radical caucuses, like CCAS, were active both on a local level and on the national level and did a number of different kinds of activities. Um, they also produced publications, some of which, like the Bulletin of Concerned Asian Scholars, outlasted their parent organizations, uh, sometimes under a different name. Now, when we look at the intellectual work of these radical scholars, uh, we find considerable similarities. And this is a material that uh, Fabia Lanza has done uh, a very good job with. Um, they were, above all, in almost every discipline, uh, critical of their disciplines for not dealing with real-world problems uh, and for ignoring ethical and moral issues in their scholarship. Um, they opposed the very notion of political neutrality, um, in claiming that the mainstream emphasis on objective scholarship uh, was simply another way of bolstering the status quo. And they also embraced interdisciplinarity. Um, and we can see this, for example, the Radical Historians Conference used to hold conferences where they'd invite sociologists or anthropologists or even people in literary fields uh, to present papers. Uh, and they also tended to be somewhat more open to emerging European scholarship and theory. They developed new fields and subfields, uh, obviously things like um, women's studies, black studies. Uh, the MLA's Radical Caucus uh, tried to expand the um, canon. They uh, wrote new textbooks bringing in writers uh, from marginalized uh, parts of society. Um, and Marxism returned, uh, often in the form of study groups organized by the radical caucuses, or at least embracing many members of those groups, uh, mainly looking at the classics of Marxism. They also founded new journals. Uh, and many of these um, 
radical groups uh, concern themselves with outreach. They organize speakers bureaus. They uh, try to popularize their research uh, to uh, create publications, for example, aimed at the lay public and at radical activists outside their own fields. Uh, they were concerned with pedagogy, with how to introduce radical perspectives in their own teaching, and they shared a lot of discussion. You see this in their uh, publications. They'll talk about how can we revise our teaching and often discuss somewhat unconventional forms of grading, uh, including, I know I shouldn't take yeah. more time. Okay. Okay. They also, as um, uh, Fabio did a very good job in discussing, uh, face conflicts between scholarship and activism um, and did not always uh, deal with it successfully. Finally, it brings up the question of co-optation. What uh, many of these people were... Uh, admitted into the mainstream of their fields. Most of these uh, radical caucuses did decline and end by the end of the 70s uh, because of the employment crisis, end of the war, and um, the end of decline of these radical movements from which the uh, radical caucuses came. But they did have some impact. And clearly, uh, we are seeing a lot of it today. Thanks so much. <laughs> Okay, now I'd like to welcome up to the podium, Professor Andrew Gordon. Thank you. It's a pleasure to have gained the invitation to join this panel, which gave me the opportunity, and perhaps more importantly, uh, the obligation to read uh, Fabio Lanza's fascinating book, End of Concern. I want to make comments on two matters. One sort of my own personal engagement with the CCS project at a bit of a remove, and second, a, a discussion of how, from the perspective of what was happening in Japan in relation to China, uh, there are some really interesting questions that could be fruitfully explored. Uh, I would place myself more or less the way Shigata did at a, about a half a generation, a decade or so removed from the main actors in this book, some of whom are here today and also in the audience. It was an interesting and challenging experience to read the book because it made me wonder, well, if I'd been born a little earlier and been in grad school rather than high school, uh, <laughs> would I have been involved in the CCAS? And I think the answer is yes, definitely. Uh, and more interestingly, well, and I was quite involved at high school in so anti-Vietnam War activity, but more interestingly, which side or sides might I have taken as the various debates unfolded that are so nicely described in the book. And I won't indulge in sharing, I won't share with you my fantasies or nightmares about that. Uh, and I'm happily exempt from having had, to, I don't know about happily, I sort of feel a little bit of envy in a way, but anyway, I was exempted from having to address that issue at the time. Except to note, I think that for myself, as I began to think about Asia, it was, and this is partly because unlike Bruce, I found Japan interesting. I didn't get involved so much in 
But similarly to Bruce, it wasn't China so much that grabbed me, but it was really the, if there was an inspiration of a revolution going on in Asia that I was a little bit entranced with uh, a few years after the CCS moment, it was the Vietnamese revolution itself. And I thought, wow, this is, and I remember studying and reading about it and thinking, wow, there's another path that could be taken. I began to intersect with the CCS generation uh, in a more serious way toward, not in the late 60s, but toward the end of college and, grad, and then in grad school. I spent the 73-74 academic year on leave from college to study Japanese in Tokyo. And I don't recall how I learned, but I did learn that there was a chapter of this thing called the Committee of Concerned Asian Scholars in Tokyo, or at least some of the members were there, and I managed to go to one of the meetings. And I remember, I, I'm sure I was the only college student in the group. The others were older. They seemed much older. Uh, I don't think they were that much older, actually. But um, the two who led the discussion, it took place in somebody's living room in Tokyo, were uh, the late Angus MacDonald and also Gavin McCormick, both of who show up in uh, Fabio's book. I think the others were probably American graduate students. There were about 10 people. What I remember being struck by at the time, it, the focus was on action, not reflection. It was on how to make connections to the anti-war soldiers on an American basis, such as especially in Yokosuka, which was near, relatively nearby, and even how to shelter and reach out to soldiers who had gone AWOL from those bases who were anti-war and give them some protection. It seemed like exciting thing to be doing, a little bit dangerous. Uh, it also, it was hard for me to see how this group of 10 people could actually do much along those lines and make those connections, but it, it was exciting. Uh, a bit later, well actually only a couple years later, as I was about to enter graduate school, I got to know John Dower's work and then John personally over many years, and that was the part of the CCS project that really hit me, kind of like a strike of lightning. When I read the summer as I was about to start graduate school, which was the same year his essay came out, this essay many of you know and have read called E.H. Norman Japan and the Uses of History. It was a harsh critique of the practice of the scholarship of Japanese studies in particular by uh, some of the professors I was about to study with, such as uh, Edwin Reischauer. Uh, it gave a kind of articulate form to some vague dissatisfactions I had myself about the scholarship that I had been reading in college. Um, and also it gave me a very specific inspiration to do social history of the working class in Japan, which is one of the topics that John noted, oh, nobody's done this yet uh, because of all the top-down focus of the existing conservative historiography. Uh, so so I, I did benefit a lot personally from the moment and the impulses you describe. I want to use the rest of my time, though, to talk about what I think would be a second valuable point of reference in thinking about the CCAS moment, which the first valuable point, which is the focus of the book besides CCAS, is France and French intellectual world of the 1960s. And that works as a comparative point of reference. And I'm not saying here you should have written a different book or added a third point. But I do think there is or a third reference point. But I do think there is great potential for somebody else, hopefully maybe even somebody in this room, to do a kind of parallel work that would be informed and inspired by the end of concern that would bring into focus the Japanese uh, story. 
What Japan shares, I think, with France and the United States, although the temporality of it is a little different, is being or having been an imperialist power at the same time that it was home to an intellectual world that was coming to grips with that imperialism, the urgent need to challenge it, the danger of challenging it, and also the possibility of engaging China as part of that process. And I'd say that Japan over the long durée, from the late 19th century up to the present, arguably more than any place or about as much as France and more than the United States, is a place where scholars and activists or people who try to combine the scholar and the activist role, which is the issue at the heart of this book, uh, were the most numerous and, and did really important work. Not just engagement with Maoism and the Cultural Revolution in the late 60s and early 70s, but starting back in the late 19th century. And Marius Janssen's pioneering work, Janssen was one of the objects of the critique of CCAS, or at least of John Dower's essay. Uh, but his first book, The Japanese in Sun Yat-sen, is about Japanese scholars slash activists who harbored and supported Sun Yat-sen and tried to both understand what was going on in China and promote change in China. And they saw that as a pathway to promote change back in their own society. So this is not unlike the CCAS project in some ways. Uh, and Jansen begins his work with a focus on one particular figure, Miyazaki Torizo uh, and, and others. But I think to, the more relevant moment would probably be the 1930s, if we're going to think of Japan as a pole of comparison. And here we have scholars who, in some ways, but really under the radar because of the danger at the time, were um, working under the shadow of imperialism in their own homeland, but also were trying to change, or thinking about changing Japan and also changing China. And I'm thinking here of the young men who were in the research section of the Southern Mediterranean Railway uh, in uh, China. And Josh Fogel has done some work in English on these people, and he's written nicely on a man named Ito Takeo. Um, these guys were working, and they were all guys, were working to, to my knowledge anyway, working to understand China, but also to change it or help change it. They saw that as their project. Uh, and they wanted to bring that home change to, bring that change home to Japan, as did actually the more um, elite bureaucrats who had a very different attitude towards the revolution. Uh, Bruce Cummings mentioned the risks that were faced by the CCAS scholars for their careers, and those risks were substantial, of course, and the young man in the film clip that um, Aronov showed also faced risks. But the people in this case faced a different level of risk. Their actions were therefore a, a little bit more um, hidden, uh, and their risk was to be thrown in jail, uh, and many of them were. There were about 80 who were arrested in 1982 to, 1942 to 43 for their uh, leftist or alleged leftist activities. But also there, I think, so there would be a, something interesting to look at those people with the problematic in mind that Fabio stresses would be a really valuable project. And also because they extended forward, there were post-war research centers for Asian studies in Japan that were directly emerging out of the Manchuria Research Bureau and those people. And some of the most important economic development institutions for Asia, Keizai, 
Kayat's Kinkyuj or something, I don't have the name exactly right, emerged right out of that into the 1950s and 60s. And then in the 60s, there were in Japan, as in uh, France or the United States and elsewhere, eminent scholars of Chinese or Asian studies who were very drawn to the Chinese revolution to Maoism and the Cultural Revolution as inspiration. And my friend and colleague, uh, Shinoda Toru, who's in the room today, has written on that. And so what I'm about to say is drawn from uh, an article he shared with me, something he calls Trans-Pacific Political Syndicalism, an intellectual and political project with roots in the 1950s. And he argues that in the 1960s and 70s, strands of anti-imperialism, of opposition to the war in Vietnam, and of support for the Chinese Cultural Revolution were tightly woven together in Japan. One of the key figures in this uh, project was a historian of science, interestingly, named Yamada Keiji, who even, although that was his field, he wrote a book on the intellectual history of the Chinese Revolution. It seems here he was either influenced by or shed influence on Joseph Needham, who in the UK had a positive view of the Cultural Revolution or the potentials for Maoism. And there are others, Hamashita Takeshi, a famous figure, was, I think, deeply engaged in thinking about these issues from the uh, combined perspectives in the 1960s and 70s. I haven't studied any of these people in depth, so these comments are just meant to be suggestive and not definitive, but I think there's a lot of interesting work that could be done uh, to take the really important themes and analysis that's in Lance's book uh, into a, a different location. So thank you very much. Uh, next up is Professor Joseph Eschery. Uh, thank you. Uh, and uh, thank you for this opportunity to join this uh, distinguished panel and for the Fairbank Center for uh, hosting it. Um, and Arnab for putting it all together. Uh, I also, of course, am a member of the early generation of CCAS. Um, and I think to some degree, I, perhaps I should say a little something about Berkeley because uh, uh, people have uh, talked about the uh, Columbia experience or, or the other experience. And uh, Berkeley with Orville Schell and Angus MacDonald and Paul and Martha Winokur. Uh, in the faculty, uh, Stan Lubman was uh, there, but, and of course, uh, most uh, importantly on the faculty, Franz Sherman. So we had uh, some uh, sort of faculty uh, supporters, um, but most of the faculty, uh, Joe Levinson, uh, really did not want to get involved uh, in this. Uh, Wakeman was still untenured, and, uh, and of course we had uh, Scalapino and uh, Chalmers Johnson on the opposition side. Um, Orville and I ran a, uh, a guerrilla discussion section to uh, Chalmers Johnson's uh, Politics of, of China, um, in which we um, presented the other side of the story, or of course the correct side of the story. Um, but um, I really, uh, I don't, given the limited time, uh, I don't want to say much more about uh, the early uh, period uh, then. I think actually Fabio has done a really quite a good job of uh, describing that. And uh, reading the book, I particularly enjoyed uh, really the, uh, the archives-based chapters on the China trips, uh, where I read uh, things that I really had not uh, known uh, before. 
The one thing I think I would like to add about my own experience with CCS and my own scholarship in relation uh, to CCS is that uh, my lone uh, bulletin publication, um, which I understand people at Harvard uh, still know about, um, uh, Harvard on China, the apologetics of imperialism, um, I wrote uh, because uh, Jim Peck had written an earlier critique of uh, Fairbank and his school, but I thought that that got into the question of the uh, assumptions behind it and the background behind it and the funding behind it and all of those sorts of things, but he hadn't really discussed the matter that really concerned me was what was the actual impact of imperialism. So um, I am unfortunately, and this has been my downfall in the epilogue of the book, um, <laughs> am uh, committed to the facts um, and what happened and what actually happened. So my understanding of Harvard <clears throat> and China, the apologetics of imperialism, is that what I was trying to do was what actually did imperialism do in China? Um, and we ought to get at that problem, and we ought to get that straight before we engage in a lot of theorizing about uh, who is ignoring it uh, or underplaying it. Um, but that uh, brings me to what I think uh, I do want to talk about. Um, and that, of course, is uh, the epilogue, um, where <laughs> I discover that um, I am the poster child uh, of the end of concern. Um, and that I am that because I have not uh, paid uh, sufficient obeisance to the uh, proclaimed intellectual heirs uh, of the Bulletin of Concerned Nation Scholar, which of course is the Physicians uh, Collective. Um, and I plead guilty. Um, um, but I'd like to say why. Um, now, I don't want to review uh, the Hevia critique, which of course is my principal uh, sin in this regard. Um, those of you who uh, want to follow that can, can read uh, the uh, modern China uh, issues of, what, 1998 uh, that review that debate back and forth. Uh, I actually think the Chinese version in Arshi Shiji uh, and the subsequent Chinese commentators on it is uh, even more interesting. Um, and um, uh, Ted Huter's um, and Ben Elman's uh, responses is uh, an interesting um, uh, example of uh, new. Uh, there, I think the Cultural Revolution does live on um, as a sort of critique uh, language. Uh, my wife certainly read it with great um, familiarity of language that he had heard before in the Cultural Revolution. Um, but I do want to get to the substance of, of what I think of the issues here. And I don't accept the notion that uh, by taking exception to certain uh, postmodern theories, that that makes one anti-theory. Um, and I think the question of theory in Chinese studies uh, is a critical and important one, uh, but I don't think there's only one theory uh, that uh, one has to subscribe to. Um, 
I would like to think uh, that in my own work, I certainly have uh, deployed, although I prefer to do it in footnotes rather than in the preface, um, uh, Marxist tradition, uh, certain anthropological theories of, of ritual and of uh, theory. Um, while I'm less likely to want to take uh, sides here, I certainly have learned a lot from political science debates on a rational choice uh, or um, the moral economy uh, of the peasant uh, or Shyanov. Um, uh, I am sure I read less psychology uh, than I should, but I've read enough to be suspicious of memoir uh, and memory uh, in general. Um, and I think we could think about uh, those questions. And I will admit, and I tell this to my students all the time, uh, my generation uh, read a great deal of Weber, um, and I still think he can be read um, uh, with profit. Uh, we all know he's a dead white male, um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that um, what he has to offer us uh, can't be uh, useful. Um, what I do firmly believe, however, is that the historian uh, is on perilous ground uh, if she starts with theory uh, and then starts looking around for facts to prove it. Um, and I tell all of my students all of the time uh, to uh, read your sources, uh, try to figure out what happened, try to get the basic narrative straight, try to get the, the chronology straight, try to identify the key uh, actors and what their social background is and where they came from. And then look around and figure out what theory is going to be most appropriate to make sense of those facts. Um, but if you start with the theory and then you go cherry pick the facts to go and start it, then you know, you're likely to probably lose people like me uh, who think you're uh, not uh, really uh, going in the right direction. And where I um, think uh, I, I tend to take a uh, particular exception to um, the uh, ideas presented in uh, the epilogue um, and, and, and some of the things that uh, do continue to trouble me uh, about the ongoing uh, Hevia debate. Uh, and, I, and I start with the thing that has puzzled me uh, most of all, um, and that is I wrote the critique of the book uh, because I was appalled by the errors in translation. Um, and I have yet to find a single Chinese who would defend his translations. But I've also uh, yet to find, in, in spite of uh, Fabio's um, uh, uh, characterization of the people I'm referring to as native witnesses, um, which I don't think is a proper way uh, to uh, regard one's Chinese sources on their language. Um, nor do I necessarily uh, argue for a fixed connection between text and interpretation. Uh, but what was that number? Um, uh, OK, three. <laughs> um, OK, I'm going to make it. Um, uh, but I don't think you can uh, just 
Wang Wen Sheng Yi um, and uh, invent an interpretation uh, to a text. Uh, you have to be able to uh, justify it. And I haven't been able to find anyone, Ben Elman, Ted Uters, or anyone who will, who will justify the interpretations that he via put forth in his book. And that, to me, is important. Uh, and one of the reasons it's important to me is that in Chinese studies, Nowadays, unlike the times of, of CCAS, uh, we are in an era where we operate often in collaboration with uh, and in close contact with and in constant dialogue with our Chinese colleagues. And I think we have to take them seriously. You have to uh, both join and enjoy and learn from that conversation with our Chinese colleagues. And if we don't get the language straight, and if they're simply constantly laughing at us for our silly interpretations or misinterpretations or translations of text, then it's very difficult to get into a meaningful uh, conversation with our Chinese uh, colleagues. Finally, uh, I do think uh, at this particular moment, uh, and here uh, I stand with uh, other people like uh, Michiko Kakutani's recent book uh, on uh, the death of truth, uh, which I read uh, with uh, great uh, pleasure, uh, that the stress on the subject position of the author, rather than the, co the coincidence with the facts as we can know them, uh, the abandonment of a search for an objective truth, even if that truth cannot be obtained, puts us in the position to have alternative facts, uh, alternative truths, um, uh, to have um, uh, fake news, um, to have creation science, uh, to have uh, climate denial, uh, and any number of other alternatives uh, that have been risen to those who are committed to actually getting at what happened. Uh, and I think we go that path, down that path at our terror. Thank you. Thank you. Our penultimate panelist, uh, Professor uh, Lian Hang Nguyen. I guess I go last because um, if we're talking about sort of temporal distance from the committee and the bulletin, I do think I cried when it when the committee dissolved, but that was probably because I was a toddler, uh, so no direct uh, direct memory. So I'd like to just thank uh, start by thanking Arna for uh, putting together this uh, conference, to Mark Grady for organizing everything, uh, to my fellow panelists, um, and most of all to Professor Fabio Lanza for writing this. Uh, so I'd like um, to begin by relating a story that kept going through my head um, as I read The End of Concern, one about the indomitable Marilyn Young, who we've all discussed. Um, five years ago, I persuaded Marilyn uh, to take part in a conference co-organized by the Vietnam Archives at Texas Tech and the National Archives uh, in Washington on the 50th anniversary uh, of 1963 in Vietnam. Now, at this conference, Professor Fred Logaval, who's back there, um, attended as well. So I might call on you if you if you can recall the events five years ago. No. <laughs> so you know we're excited to present new findings and new approaches uh, to the study of the war. Um, we, the organizers, learned though of some troubling news uh, right before the event. 
Much to our dismay, a group called the Vietnam Veterans for Factual History, uh, indeed, that's, I guess, the only kind of history, factual history, uh, was very upset with the conference agenda and the lineup. They feared that too many left-leaning academics would try to convince those in attendance uh, that the United States had acted dishonorably and, more importantly, illegally uh, in the lead-up to the Vietnam War. Now, months before the conference was set to take place, we found out that this group was planning on teaming up with no other than a certain person by the name of Mark Moyer, the revisionist extraordinaire, author of Triumph Forsaken, and alum of Harvard University, uh, to launch what was a full-blown full -blown protest of the conference. After failing to insert more factual historians into the lineup, they threatened to bus in angry veterans and Vietnamese Americans from all over the country to shout down the presentations. Fortunately, that didn't happen. Uh, instead, the Vietnam Veterans for Factual History circulated a volume they called a pre-sponse, uh, as opposed to a response, that included alternate versions of the conference papers uh, filled with factual histories written by more suitable scholars. Uh, but more importantly, uh, at least for my comments today, the pre-sponse also included a list of shortcomings uh, of the assembled speakers. For Maryland, you can imagine, they didn't hold back. Uh, while most of the negative bios, Fred, do you remember yours? <laughs> I'll find it. <laughs> Would go for about a sentence or two, Maryland's crimes took up paragraphs. Uh, and even that wasn't enough for the Vietnam veterans uh, for factual history. Even my bio included a jab at Maryland. My gravest sin, according to them, was that I was a follower of the Maoist historian Marilyn Young. Uh, and even today, I can still recall Marilyn with her Brooklyn accent. I don't know how many of you can have heard it firsthand. Uh, could literally hear, uh, I mean, I, could, I, I remember as she read uh, basically that line again and again, she always did with a lot of gusto whenever she got to the word Maoist. She's like, I stuck it to them, I'm Maoist. So Fabio, reading uh, this book was a joy for me because I could literally hear that Brooklyn accent as I read quotes like the one that you included on page 83, which in my view was classic Maryland. Quote, they were behaving like fucking party functionaries. And this was in response to her being kicked off the list uh, for the third visit of the CCAS trip to China, which never happened. Okay, so I don't really have much in the way of critique uh, for this book that treats its subject, uh, the Committee of Concerned Asian Scholars, with the care and, and respect that it deserves. Chapter one traces the connection they wanted to forge between political concern and scholarly <coughs> production. The early years of CCAS, we learned, grappled seriously with how to learn from China and its revolution. Chapter two further explores how these scholars integrated the scholarship and their activism as the confines of academia became too constricting for these activists. While reading this chapter, I was struck with the similarities to the issues and demands put forward today by a group of US foreign relations historians at the 2018 annual meeting of the Society for Historians of American Foreign Relations, known as Schaefer. This group protested uh, the organization's invitation to General David Petraeus to serve as the meeting's keynote, and also voiced concern when the format of the address left no room uh, for Q&A as John Noggle, who kind of served as a sort of moderator bodyguard. Um, basically, you know, we couldn't ask him the questions we wanted to ask him about counterinsurgency. So instead, what these scholars did was they held a counter meeting at a park close to the hotel conference, urging Schaefer's leadership to change how the organization functioned and made decisions, and to take a bolder stance on voicing criticism over the course of US foreign policy, especially in these dark days of Donald Trump. 
Um, at the end of Concerns Chapter 3 is the first of two chapters that I'll call the disillusionment chapters as CCAS makes its first visits to China during a period when it's clear that party leaders in Beijing are beginning to sell out its revolution. And Chapter 4 goes further down this path of the dissolution of the committee in dealing with Deng's uh, China. And finally, the epilogue, uh, which I think we might now have in the new version, the new epilogue that'll take into account sort of what will happen after I leave the days and, and allow Fabio to come up and respond. <laughs> to Joe, um, that you know, so uh, basically that you know this this what he's what he sees as sort of the current challenges of the field of China studies in the wake of this theoretical turn. Now, one immediate quibble I had with this book was the lack of Chinese views, or at least of, of the, the one-party state on the committee as well as the bulletin. Uh, when I carried out research uh, for my Bernath lecture on the global anti-war movement, I was able to access Vietnamese materials, mainly party. Uh, and mass organization materials on what they thought of American visitors, um, particularly in the post-1968 period to Vietnam. Uh, while there were testaments to the global sisterhood and global brotherhood shared with the anti-war activists of the West, there was also plenty of cultural misunderstandings as well. When members of the Vietnamese Women's Union chastised Abby Hoffman and her fellow yippies uh, for not being married with children, apparently they basically responded that they were into heavy petting uh, <laughs> with multiple men in communes. That criticism reflected as much about the state of women's rights and, and conceptions of women's uh, roles in Vietnam more than it did anything else. The other point I wanted to make in my short remarks is that while I was convinced uh, by Fabio that this was and should be an intellectual and political history, indeed the two are in intertwined, of scholars focused on China, I couldn't help but think he could have easily expanded the book and as all of my co-panelists have sort of said, Vietnam. Vietnam is the sort of the, 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 the grill in the room, uh, that it could have been about Vietnam as well. Again and again, as I was reading the book, I replaced China with Vietnam, more specifically about the idea of China with the idea of Vietnam in the minds of the <coughs> Asian scholars, uh, scholars and, and um, you know, anti-war activists, as we've seen in the works of Judy Wu uh, and Jessica Frazier's new studies on the global anti-war movement, looked at Vietnam as a model society. And when Fabio wrote uh, about the global reach of Maoism, I saw the global adulation of the Vietnamese national liberation struggle and Ho Chi Minh thought with groups around the world. And while events like the Cultural Revolution were highly influential uh, to scholars at this time, so too was the 1968 Tet Offensive, which served as catalyst to uprisings worldwide. And finally, the disillusionment chapters, which perhaps happens a little later in Vietnam, I would say 75, 79, could be applied uh, there as well. One interesting departure, however, is the state of, field, the, state of the field of Vietnam studies uh, for the remainder of the Cold War. Uh, and here I'll just really briefly say, you know, sort of what happened in the field of Vietnam studies. Um, you know, these scholars sick and tired of, of, of Americans seeing that Vietnam only as a war and not a country with its own history, politics, society, culture, worthy of study. Um, the next generation after 1975 did not focus on this period from 19, anything that happened after 1945 uh, and, and before 1975. So basically history, the history of Vietnam was all about the pre-45 period or the post-75 period. Indeed, uh, King Fairbanks' uh, own, own, own student, uh, Alexander Woodside, and later Keith Taylor, um, did not train scholars who worked on that war. This only changed uh, more recently uh, in the 2000s. 
Uh, the other compelling reason to include Vietnam, and in, in the end, concern if you ever do a second version, would have been an addition of yet another great character to the study filled with great characters. Ngo Vinh Lam was a member of CCAS. He combined his activism and his scholarship, particularly within the anti-war movement, giving speeches alongside Noam Chomsky and Howard Zinn. After the war, uh, when Harvard was looking to fill the position here in Vietnamese history, Lam was tapped uh, and invited to campus. And just like some China scholars who we just heard about who found themselves denied tenure and unable to find a job in academia, Lam also suffered as a result of his political activism. When he arrived to give his job talk here uh, in Cambridge, an angry mob prevented him. Apparently, they were throwing Molotov cocktails. If anyone was there, I, I, I would love to hear firsthand testimonies of this. Throwing mo lobbing Molotov cocktails, um, so much so that, that basically Lam had to be escorted away uh, by guards. Uh, so I think, in short, this book could be about Vietnam too. Finally, uh, while I began my, my brief remarks with Marilyn, I end with another female scholar who has influenced me just as much as Marilyn had, Hue Tham Ho Tai, who recently retired from Harvard, so she did receive that, that position that Lam was denied, uh, said that she avoided CCAS folks when she was a graduate student here. Um, as she was you know, concerned about communism in Vietnam, the repression of the North Vietnamese regime, given her family's experiences. She did not know enough, she said, about the lives of ordinary peasants to set herself up as a mouthpiece for the Vietnamese people. At the same time, she said, she appreciated and respected the work they did in the field and much more than that. Thank you. Thank you. And Professor Fabio Lanza will now summarize and respond to everything that's been brought up uh, in 12 minutes. I am the only one with no notes because I didn't know what was going to happen. Um, so it's a strange situation for me to be here. First of all, I want to thank Aaron Ab, uh, and everybody here and the fellow panelists who came all the way. Um, it's a strange position to find myself here. Uh, I didn't expect to write this book in many ways, and I uh, didn't expect that this book would be read. Um, so I also have, and then I'll, I'll go into the substance, I also have a very strange relationship with, with what I do and what I write. I always think that books and articles are like, you know, college-age children. You can send them into the war, but then they have to fend for them, off for themselves. You, there's not much you can do to prevent them from getting drunk. Uh, you hope that you, you know, taught them well, and off they go. Um, I always want to end my next book with, that's it. That's all I have to say. Um, and in many ways, uh, that's it. That's all I have to say. Um, but coming to, to, to the, some of the points that, that were um, raised, uh, yeah, there's no Vietnam, there's very little, there's no Japan. Um, I, I want to write an article eventually, maybe in a year or so, uh, things I've learned since I wrote this book. Um, uh, people are, you know, Bruce was telling anecdotes I didn't know. Uh, um, there is, there is stuff that's not, that, there's the stuff that didn't make it into the book. Other uh, brilliant stories uh, that uh, involved Mike Oxenberger, for example, that was mentioned earlier, and other people that, that I couldn't fit in. Uh, uh, there's, the reason why there's no, uh, either there's no Vietnam, and there's very little Japan, and there's very little Korea, of course, 
uh, and very little India, uh, it's because I made my life easier. Uh, I am a China scholar, and as Joe say, you do you have to work with your language, and in this case, I have to do with the knowledge of my field specifically, and it will be much more difficult to deal with Vietnam. So I really made my life is I didn't do it with with the purpose of. Uh, and I think I tried to make the case at the very beginning of the book that Vietnam was the thing. That without Vietnam, you wouldn't have any of this. Uh, uh, and and uh, the Japan side that, um, that Andy mentioned about, about uh, the, the GI movement, uh, it's, it's in the archives too, but I didn't, I didn't fit it in. Uh, 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 in, in, in sort of, a, it's not an answer to, the, to, to everything that's been said, but let me sort of try to uh, explain why I wrote this book. Uh, and then I'll get to the epilogue, I promise. Uh, very briefly, because I don't want to get, spend too much time on that. Uh, I wrote this book almost by chance in many ways. The material came to me and it was a random occasion. Uh, but I wrote it because I thought it was a way of thinking about what we do. Uh, especially as, as a China historian, I, it's a way of thinking through this experience of how we think about China, how we have thought about China. Uh, I am uh, a 20th century China historian, I started 20th century China. Uh, now more focused on the Maoist period, how do we think about the Maoist period? How can we think? And also, the other side is, okay, what is our job? Uh, these people, uh, the CIS, uh, try very hard to engage in that very crucial question of the connection between scholarship and activism. And I take them seriously for them. And I don't think they saw China, uh, and I think I tried, maybe I'm not that clear in the book, but I think I tried to tread the very fine line between the illusion of China and how China works as an inspiration, how Maoism works as, as a vocabulary, as a language, as a way of interpreting the world. And, I, and I, there was obviously a, a balance between the society where like shifting, it was very easy to shift into the China as the Mecca uh, part, but, but there was always the other side. Maoism as a interpretative method. Maoism as a experimental, uh, set of experimental possibilities, and so on and so forth. So that, uh, uh, that was engagement with China. But I think the question was scholarship and activism. How can we be, um, you know, good scholars in the classroom and good activists in the world? And it's the separation between these two, two, two things. Uh, and I don't think the book gives you an answer uh, at all. Let me be very clear. Don't go read it and think, oh, that's a solution. No, there's not. Uh, I don't have a solution. And if I add it, I will tell you what it is. Um, but I think it's the, the books give, the, the, the experience of CIS uh, tells, sort of helps with figuring out the question itself helps with you know thinking more deeply about uh, the question of what what the relationship between scholarship and activism is and um, and I start from the very very obvious uh, 
point to me that scholarship is always political. There's no other scholarship. So that, that's, that's what the book engages with. This is a question the book engages with, with the particular examples to say yes, with the particular like, setting of the long 60s that my fellow panelists have described. Uh, and that's why I wrote the epilogue. Um, because I could, I, I thought for a while of living the story in 1982, where, uh, 82 I think, uh, when the double issue on post-Mao China of the Bulletin of Constitution Scholar comes up. And the CCIS is ready to solve, and there is a, we can say, an acceptance of, of the reform era. But I, I didn't, and it was not just to claim a legacy. Uh, um, uh, I don't actually say the position is, I don't think I say the position is the exact uh, do, do I? No. No. The, the exact, it's the, 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 the inheritor of, of, of the mantle of the bulletin. Um, Tani Barlow, the senior editor of position, the funny says in um, one of the pieces that she thought they were in that line. But I, and I think I quote her. Um, the, the, the point was how we can think about uh, that relationship today. So I, I was trying to stretch it, the way we can think in the relationship with scholarship and activism, and the way we can think about the political engagement with scholarship and with China specifically today. And uh, my way of doing it is through um, what I, we, we call theory, basically. A theoretical engagement. Uh, it's an engagement with China, and again, I, I agree with, with Joe absolutely about uh, the, the fact that we now work with Chinese colleagues much more than we did in the past. And my point is we should think with Chinese colleagues. Uh, we should think together. And, and there is a possibility, and the only way of thinking is not simply through a shared language, which I'm all in favor, of course, but also through a possibility of having theoretical horizon there are, you know, in, in communication. The point, treating Chinese as subjects, as you know, I say in the large part of the book. Um, and if I can explain one thing uh, in, in response to what uh, uh, Professor Eschrich said, um, it, it's, I'm done. Uh, it, it's not a question of uh, facts versus theory. It is a question of acknowledging that Empiricism, it's itself a theory. That facts don't come as facts. Um, I'm, I'm absolutely fine if one wants to articulate empiricism as a theory. But empiricism is not in opposition to any other theoretical approach. It is a theoretical approach. Um, and as such, it should be justified, and it should be defended, and it's, there's great scholarship being done. Uh, in that name, uh, including by, by Professor Eschick, uh, many students uh, who do excellent work. Uh, so uh, that, that's, that's, I think, a slightly different take of what uh, theory means. Uh, sorry, I'll stop because I, I'm rambling and uh, I want to get questions. Thank you. Great, thank you so much.
Yeah, I want to thank uh, all our panelists for really stimulating discussion as well as our, our audience. We're going to turn it over to you all, our audience, for about uh, 20 minutes of discussion, of qu question and answer. You can please uh, identify your name, uh, your, your institution or, or institute, and please keep your questions brief because we have a lot of people and uh, a lot of questions. There will be a reception uh, shortly after 6 o'clock, to which you're all warmly invited. The reception will be right outside the door there. So if you don't get a chance to ask your question now, you will have a chance to uh, mix and mingle with the panelists uh, going forward. I'd just like to throw a question out there, but please don't answer it now, because we are really short on time. But maybe something we can uh, keep in mind and, and continue the conversation going at it. it uh, uh, relates uh, to, Fabio, what you were just talking about, the relationship between activism and scholarship. And I think given the challenges that we're facing now today, you know, everything we hear on the news about Trump and others in government, uh, growing inequality, uh, growing uh, the growing intensity of climate disasters, this question of our responsibility as scholars, as professionals in academia, you know, what role we should or shouldn't be playing in activism, I think is something that if not are on our own minds is very much on the minds of our students. I get undergraduates and particularly graduate students in my office at least once a week asking how can we, you know, make a difference in the world? How can we combine our interest in what's happening in the world, our interest in improving uh, what we see, uh, rectifying injustices, how can we combine that with our interests uh, in the intellectual pursuits and what price might we pay for this? And of course, we saw the really serious price that a lot of the members of the CCAS played, uh, paid back in the 1970s. And I'd be curious, you know, what our panelists think about the risks, benefits, and really what we should be advising our students. But as I said, don't answer that now. We're going to throw the floor open. I'm unfortunately going to have to run in about five minutes, but I think Arunab uh, will be uh, taking over my position then. So, uh, first question. Yeah. Okay, thank you. Um, my name is Boha Wu. Uh, I'm a second year in the history department. Uh, my question is more, um, as, as I discussed with Professor Gordon this afternoon, about how the um, uh, CCS generation um, echoes to some extent with the uh, Japanese scholars um, in the 30s who were studying Manchukuo and projecting their conception um, about the uh, development to Japan to some extent. Uh, so I, my question is, what was, do you, would you perceive the uh, CCS generation as a um, uh, re reoccurring theme for the, uh, for the scholarship or was it a very specific product of a uh, uh, historical context that's all in in the 70s and 60s. May we take a couple questions at once? Is that so? Uh, other questions? Yeah. Oh, okay. There and then back there. Um, so this is a bit uh, off of what uh, Karen Thornburgh asked. I'm David Porter. I'm a recent PhD in Chinese history from Harvard. Um, it's sort of thinking about contemporary, the ways in which contemporary movements, which were interacting with contemporary sorts of politics for Asian studies scholars. Obviously, there's a lot of what Karen talked about, which sort of generally applies to the academy as a whole. But it seems like increasingly, for those of us who work on China in particular, a lot of what we're seeing as things we need to act about are not coming from the perspective of, of criticizing our own country's actions in Asia, but thinking about in China itself, particularly things like 
the position of Uyghurs in Xinjiang at the moment. Um, and I'm wondering if any of the panelists have any thoughts about the sort of different form that this, ha that this takes, what, what it means to be worried about issues where it's not criticism within our own sort of political realm, but criticism of the, the place we are studying and of the, the society we're studying, which I think a lot of us have a sort of discomfort with that we might not have had when it's pointing at our own government. Um, and so any sort of thoughts on that would be nice. Okay, and there was the gentleman in the back. Uh, yeah. oh, thank you very much for a very interesting panel. I'm Roger DeForge. Um, Professor Emeritus at SUNY Buffalo and um, uh, an associate of the, of the Fairbank Center. I was particularly uh, pleased by Professor Bose's suggestion that um, we need to look to Asia to provide alternatives to the dominant paradigms and Western views of the world, and particularly, of course, American views. During the Cultural Revolution, of course, the Maoists criticized Deng Xiaoping as a capitalist rotor, and many of us laughed thinking that, wouldn't, that couldn't be possible within a communist party. Uh, but now I think it's pretty clear that that wasn't completely inaccurate characterization. Uh, so now I think we're faced with a new wave of American dominance and, uh, and an Asian effort to get uh, part of that as part of having power in the global scene. So I guess my question is, uh, you know, what are the alternatives? Uh, Tagore suggested that Asia would not change the world if Asia followed Europe. I think that's right. Uh, China will not change the world if China follows America. Um, but what are the sources of an alternative vision? And I think there are plenty of them in Chinese history uh, to look at. Great. So our panelists. Well, just to answer Bohau's question, my suggestion wasn't that there is one other um, sort of poll, and I didn't mean to suggest that Fabio, you should have written that material into your book. I think there are many, many, uh, I mean, if you're thinking beyond uh, Asia, there are many instances. The issue at the heart of the book really is not so much China and America, but it's scholarship and activism. It's how to both understand the world and change the world. And that issue goes way beyond, of course, the focus of this particular book or any inquiry limited to Asia. But if we do limit it to Asia, I think there's many times and places where similar dilemmas were faced by people. Um, how do you be responsible scholars and how do you be um, effective activists? At the present moment, the one that, um, I may get a little bit of trouble for this, the one that uh, troubles me is connects to the political agitation against the Japanese government over war responsibility, in particular responsibility for the situation of the comfort women, where I see effective political action has to flatten the story into two categories. And this is true in general in any situation where you're looking at a realm where there's collaboration. And effective scholarship has to tell a rich story. And that always leaves you, a, a, leaves you vulnerable as a 
scholar who also wants to promote a certain line of action to being appropriated by the other side. And so the best book on that topic that I'm aware of is by Sarah So. And indeed, because she tells a story and where there aren't, aren't only Japanese villains and Korean victims, but other people, she gets becomes the darling of, of the Japanese right wing. And that happened to John Dower with War Without Mercy. It, it, it's, there's no way around it. And so that's why this dilemma that you present is so urgent and where I'm so despairing of the ability to be effective on both fronts in the same project. So that's not a very optimistic message, but anyway. I wanted to respond to the last question about Tagore and, and what Asia can do uh, as opposed to what the West does. And I thought one of the most uh, interesting points in, in Fabio's book was where we not only have the end of CCAS, but we have, much more importantly, the end of China as a serious intellectual problem on a transnational basis, and especially France uh, and uh, the US. In a sense, China becomes uninteresting just as it takes off under Deng Xiaoping's reforms, because it seems to be uh, doing exactly what uh, you alluded to, which is following the West and maybe more particularly America. And that is something that I remember thinking at the time. And, and it, in many ways, it's a great loss in, in spite of the terrible violence of the Cultural Revolution and all of that. China was saying something that the whole world was paying attention to. I also wanted to say uh, something that isn't in Fabio's book, probably because he wasn't part of the China field here. Uh, most of the field of contemporary China was very interested in the Cultural Revolution in the uh, mid, mid and late 60s. There's a, a book by Stuart Schramm, who, uh, an edited volume, I still remember it has a peach colored cover. It's a very interesting book on the Cultural Revolution. And my former colleague, uh, Dong Zhou at, at the University of Chicago was actually writing articles about the Gang of Force theory of a, a new class in the party and linking it to Milovan Gilas's uh, book, The New Class, things like that. That all ceased with, you know, very abruptly uh, in, in the uh, mid and late 70s. But it isn't, in other words, just CCAS scholars. Uh, the whole field of contemporary China, I think, was uh, in a sense caught up in the Cultural Revolution, not in the sense that they were following it or believing in it, but, but finding it uh, to be a, a very interesting thing to write about. Over there, yeah. I think there, there are two uh, important reasons why this is the case. Uh, one is, well, they've both already been alluded to, but I'm going to put a slightly different spin on them. One is uh, Fabio had the fantastic good fortune of uh, uh, having uh, Donald Trump be elected and put the issues of scholarship and activism uh, I will give up right that. in our face uh, in ways that <laughs> are, are in, inescapable. Uh, the other one is, I want to put a different spin on what Bruce has, has just said. He's talking about how China became uninteresting in the 60s and 70s. Uh, but I want to argue that China is extremely no, interesting. Uh, after today. 1979. Not, 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 not take, you know, of course, uh, what attracted us and excited us was the Cultural Revolution at that time. Uh, but what attracts and excites us now is that uh, there is, in fact, the direct challenge to American power, and we're seeing it fought out uh, in the arena uh, 
today before us. And this, uh, uh, this forces us to, to rethink our own categories of scholarship uh, and activism and rethink uh, the possibilities of uh, where we take our own work in, in both of those camps. Well, it also means that we have to rethink why it is that the scholarship activism link fell apart. This is the, your end of, of concern, um, I, I suppose, uh, and how to, how to restore that. Well, I think we're seeing the restoration at certain kinds of levels, but we don't know whether it can in fact, well, of course, we, don't, we never can know the future. We don't know in fact whether we have much to say, but part of the answer to that also is a theme that I think uh, is suggested <coughs> by the book, uh, which is to think actively about Asia. Uh, because Asia now, instead of being the victim of imperialism that we knew when we were studying uh, initially, now not just China, uh, but also other countries of Asia, including India, uh, for sure, uh, and including Vietnam, uh, now are active agents uh, and the entire world has to be rethought uh, in a period in which uh, the nature of American hegemony is being questioned. People want to respond. Right, so I was wondering if people want to respond or, or we can take another question. Yeah. I mean, I, I think Mark is right about China presenting a very formidable uh, threat uh, or alternative to American hegemony in the 21st century. But I don't think China is producing interesting ideas in the sense that Fabio was talking about. I mean, if it's going to be another great power uh, that has these building projects, the you know, one belt, one road, and all of that. I, I mean, it's interesting as a phenomenon in the world, but it's not that interesting intellectually, I think. And that, that's what I think Fabio was getting at. Yeah, I mean, uh, this, I mean, and, and one can, you know, I'm not saying historically, I'm saying prospectively at the time, the Cultural Revolution sounded something uh, completely um, different. The project of a Maoist was uh, presented itself and uh, was perceived in large part as a radical alternative of something. And a radical alternative spoke globally. That, you know, people could call themselves Maoist wherever they were, from the Naxalite to, to, to the French to to Africa and 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 Sendero Luminoso in Peru. Um, and I think that's a radical difference. China. I mean, there is a discourse within China now of the Chinese model, the Chinese dream, you know, whatever the stuff is. But not to be an old Marxist, but uh, the novelty, it's not there, really. I mean, yeah, it's, it's a novelty in terms of ge 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 geopolitics. Yes, of course, it's, it's, it does change everything. That, but I find even the... Uh, post-colonial uh, passion for the rise of Asia as an alternative um, uh, a little bit mm -hmm. uh, meaningless. I mean, just there's something wrong. And I, to go back to your question about, and, and then you get to the point, you know, how do you deal with, you know, um, uh, Xinjiang or Tibet or, uh, and, and you're right, I am I, very uncomfortable. Personally, I mean, I have no qualms in saying I find I find uncomfortable both people who publish like twenty articles saying that you know genocide and stuff, which you know, big title genocide, and people who uh, 
uh, excuse the system uh, that says, you know, you know what, we can't say anything because, you know, it's a different system, it's a different country, and, you know, um, and we have to sort of respect internal logic. Yeah, I don't have an answer. <laughs> okay, we'll take a few more questions. Yeah, over here in the front. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, wait for the mic. My name is Carolyn Boynelli, and I'm a member of the general public. But I wanted to ask you because the '60s and Vietnam was brought up on. Um, what impact Emilio D'Antonio's In the Year of the Pig, the um, the film, had on, uh, or if it has any implications for this. And then um, I just thought of it in terms of China, because I, I really don't know very much about China. But I think today, when I look at the American left, not the American Academy, but um, I looked a Black Agenda report, and I think that China's interaction with Africa and China's interaction with South America is unique. And I think that um, China is just not going back. It's going forward in totally different ways. And um, I'm just wondering whether... Um, I, I don't, don't know. I just don't know whether they're going to just do something that's completely different. I, I'm sure they are. Thank you. We'll take a couple more questions. If yeah, Ian. I have a catalog of questions. So well, just just the one. Just I'm afraid. One. And I don't save, know if save I can the do rest that, for. I want to thank the panel and thank Fabio for writing a provocative, important book. These are questions, as Andy Gordon suggested. All of us are living in this room, and we need to continue to ask them daily, regularly, and so on. The question I was going to ask is, what do we need to be concerned about now? If it's over at the end of the book, uh, what's changed? But this is a way to smuggle in another question or two, because I completely flout the, the uh, very kind prompt from Professor Ghosh. I want to ask specific questions that we may not have time to get to, but uh, for Professor Schrecker, I want to ask you to expand on the notion that McCarthyism's impact was unique in this field. That's really comparatively interesting. For someone who came up in the field in the 90s, really, that, you know, and, and went through graduate school with Professor Lanza debating concern and what to be concerned about, that was really interesting to me and not something I'd thought about. I'd thought about internal critique and Reichauer's legacy. I had not thought about McCarthyism's impact beyond the E.H. Norman episode and story. Um, the second question was for Professor Cummings to ask you to expand on the provocative notion, and I'm not sure I understood it, that undermining authority in the classroom was con is connected for you to the rise of neoliberalism, that narrative? Neoconservatism. Neo so I'm, I'm just interested, again, I'm wanting to hear that played out. I, I, Along with the McCarthyism story, I understand it, but it's an interesting story, and the details would be fascinating to hear developed intellectually. And the final, final point is, is simple, that I don't think it's facts so much that are under assault, but expertise. Mm -hmm. That's code for a much longer engagement with very powerful structural forms, corporate forms, government mm -hmm. forms. Facts are one thing, but what's, that's code for coming after this room in a certain sense, and what universities do 
and what might have changed, or maybe it hasn't changed at all, but expertise has become a form of resistance. Uh, and so <laughs> that might answer the question I started with. Intellectualism. Hang on. Uh, let's take one last question, because we're running out of time. So then we'll have to, we'll have to wrap things up after that. So yeah, over here in the front. Hi, I'm Josh Friedman. I'm a graduate student in political science here. Um, this broad discussion that we just had about, or has been going on about um, China as a different vision of what the world political system could look like or a political system could look like, um, without getting too meta, isn't it true that that's sort of the question that has driven all debates in the last 50, 100 years? And uh, what happened, what, one interpretation of what happened here was that people thought it was Maoism and then they were disillusioned by it. And the reason that they're not looking for it again now is that they don't see it uh, in, in Mao and so they're looking somewhere else for it. So that, that doesn't strike me as something to be concerned about if they did not, they're disillusioned by that option. What are we concerned about if they're not using China to look for another uh, way? That makes sense. If it doesn't make sense, I'll talk to you after and make it make more sense. Okay, great. Uh, let's let's take some responses from the, the panel. Um, okay. Have you ever heard of the loss of China? Uh, this was a scenario that McCarthy actually embodied. I mean, I spent many years writing about McCarthyism and always said McCarthyism was more than McCarthy, but on this one issue, this was McCarthy's issue. He picked it up, it was a mainstream Republican notion that the United States under Roosevelt and Truman had given China away to the communists. And um, they, there was always a kernel of plausibility in that story because there was a focus on an organization known as the Institute of Pacific Relations in which in the days before there were East Asian studies in universities, there was this organization that everybody who was concerned about China in a intellectual way belonged to. And it also included people who were communists. And so the scenario was always, here's the IPR, there are communists in it, therefore they gave China to the communists. And it uh, meant that people uh, who were leaders in the field of East Asian studies, the most eminent being Owen Lattimore, were literally expunged from the field and uh, Fairbank was called up by committees, uh, Fairbank every year used to have a little session with the incoming graduate students in which he explained that the main thing you had to do was keep very careful accounts of where you were at any time and who you were with because you could never tell when you'd be called before a committee. Um, I don't know if he continued to do that, but in the uh, late 50s and early 60s, this was what he was telling his students. And it clearly created a um, avoidance within the field of dealing with uh, stuff that could get you into trouble. And really, I think, distorted Chinese studies. I'm sure there are people who know this better than I do. But um, it, 
because of that notion of loss of China that the Republicans really were pushing, because they couldn't attack the Democrats on any other grounds. They couldn't attack them on the grounds of creating the New Deal, which is what they were really against, because uh, the voters liked the New Deal. Um, so this was the issue that was brought up and really affected East Asian studies in ways that no other field was touched. It was really central. I, I just want to say something about that. I completely agree with, with Ellen. Uh, one of the things I didn't say today is that the whole business of CCAS at Columbia was completely political. Almost every day of the week, you know, what we now call microaggressions and implicit bias and all of that, you see it all the time. Uh, but Columbia, uh, there was a, a ballast of resistance that had to be dealt with, mainly in CCAS. But I, I went to uh, the University of Washington in 1977, and Carl Wittfogel had been one of the few people to testify against Owen Lattimore uh, and had written uh, in 1959 his big tome called Oriental Despotism. And he had tried to reproduce himself in Seattle, which is rather hard. It's the most middle-class city in America. I mean, I mean, we're talking about a guy who was the leading theoretician of the German Communist Party in the early 1930s and then flip-flopped after Stalin attacked him. Uh, but there were several uh, of his people still hanging around in 1977. And uh, one of them was Nicholas Popa. There were three people from the University of Washington to testify against Lattimore, uh, Wittfogel, and Popa, actually uh, had been at the Vance Institute in 1943, working on separating out different kinds of ethnic minorities in Eastern Europe. In other words, right in the middle of the Holocaust, although he always denied it. He was vetted <clears throat> through the OSS to Harvard and then to the University of Washington. And then George Taylor was running the whole shebang there, the East Asian program. And he also testified against Lattimore. Uh, and, I mean, Columbia was a liberal place, and nobody there would, would have uh, denounced Owen Lattimore. But boy, Washington was full of people like that. And I, I had an alternative job uh, at the Colegio de Mexi Mexico. And the woman, the China scholar who, who wanted to, me to go to Mexico City, uh, she, when I said, no, I can't, you know, it's impossible, she said, well, have a great time with those reactionaries at the University of Washington. <laughs> and I, I'm sorry to talk so much, but it, it was, again, just a buzzsaw almost all the time. I mean, my department chair would call me in, into his office every uh, few months, you know, to remind me that no other major Asian senator would have hired me because of my politics. I mean, imagine you're a black person and somebody says that to you. I mean, I'm not comparing my situation to that, except it, it, it's just pure... Uh, your politics. And he thought he was, uh, I don't know, Pollyanna or God's gift to humanity for uh, keeping me on the faculty, whereupon in 1987 I left for another major center at Chicago. But I wanted to respond also to this woman's question about Emile D'Antonio. I was actually sitting in the audience in 1968 when that film was screened before a much larger auditorium than this, I think it was either late 68 or early 69. Uh, it's an absolutely fascinating film that, that I don't know if Joe uh, has seen it, but it bears on his point about facts and cherry picking because there's no narr narration. And it starts with Vietnamese, uh, a scene in Vietnam in the 1930s where blacks 
are working at a restaurant or, or doing uh, uh, rickshaws, uh, and they're blacks from French colonies in Africa. And then he looks at the French army, and it's just a multinational army from all the colonies. And then he, 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 there's no narration. The next thing you know, Hubert Humphrey is defending the war or something like that. Um, and I wrote about this at one point, just his technique of making a documentary. But I, I went to Swarthmore College before I went to the University of Washington. And I have to say, it was a complete breath of fresh air. No one gave a damn about my politics. We had a guy who was a follower of Lyndon LaRouche on the faculty. <laughs> and the idea that someone would have, you know, tried to do something to you or criticize you for your political point of view, people would start laughing. Um, and Chicago was like that too. I, I mean, it, it's just a place where even the dean will start laughing if someone says so-and-so is a Marxist. But I invited Emil D'Antonio to Swarthmore to show that, uh, I don't think it was, that it was a subsequent film. And he gets up in front of this audience and he says, I'm a Marxist and everybody says, oh yeah, great, isn't it? <laughs> Leninist. <laughs> Silence. Well, I tried to show yeah. you the pig at Yeshiva. I was teaching a class in the Vietnam War, and I wanted to show Hearts and Minds, but it was vetoed by the rabbis because there was a scene in a brothel with an unclothed woman, and we couldn't show that to our tender Orthodox Jewish boys. But. Um, <laughs> I found out that they also vetoed Year of the Pig because um, it wasn't kosher. <laughs> well, on that note, please, please join me in thanking our panel. We've run out of time, unfortunately. That's too good to be true. Is that true? Really true.